Coming up on this week's show, Jen Hale is here to talk about the final installments in her K. Leon series. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 210 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willcanals.com, and with me, as always, is my co-host and husband, Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. An extra big thank you to Gabriella for joining us as a transcript producer. We'll have more information on how you can join her and the rest of our super cool Patreon crew at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming up for you next week. Well, it is almost time, people. Uh, the <laughs> the the year-end event <laughs> around which the entire gay fiction calendar is based. That's right, I'm talking about the Gay Rom Lit Retreat, which is going to be in Albuquerque this year. Yes, I've already seen people on my social media feeds, even this this weekend while we're recording this episode, already on their way to Albuquerque in some cases uh, to get there and do a little sightseeing ahead of time. Can't wait to see everybody. So before we go into detail about this year's GRL event, uh, let's talk about some of the happenings, the goings on this past week. Yes, we actually have another new podcast to welcome to the uh, Gay Podcast Neighborhood, which is growing at a rapid rate right now. Oh, so awesome. It is. <laughs> this past Thursday, the Gay Mystery Authors podcast debuted. Uh, it's hosted by writer Brad Shreve and Justine Adamek, who is from the Requeered Tales publisher. Uh, the first show included book recommendations from Justine in a wonderful conversation with Brad. And then Brad interviewed author Michael Kraft about his new book, Choir Master. I have to say, I really enjoyed the interview. Uh, Brad uses this spinning wheel to determine a random question that he actually categorizes as something an author might not want to answer. Uh, in Michael's case, it's, it was, uh, why don't you write uh, erotica because that's where the money is. So you'll have to tune into that show to see what uh, the answer to that was. I have to say also that I really love their rainbow fingerprint logo. It is so on point for a mystery podcast. So you could check them out at gaymysteryauthors.com. Also, we want to give a quick shout out to our friends at the Top to Bottom podcast on this past Monday's episode, which was their top episode for October. They celebrated their second anniversary and it just happened to be their 50th episode. Yay! Congratulations to them. And if you haven't checked them out, you can go find them at toptobottompodcast.com. And that's bottom spelled B-O-T-M. Hi, I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully J, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully J is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. 
You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. Now, for those of you who are going to be attending GRL in Albuquerque, here are a few places where you can find us during the action-packed and reading-filled weekend. Uh, First off, on Wednesday evening, we'll be at the Industry Professional Fair, which is open to published and aspiring authors. Now, essentially, Wednesday is sort of like pre-celebration festivities. Uh, The weekend doesn't officially kick off until Thursday, but if you happen to be at the hotel and event space, there are going to be things for you to do on Wednesday evening. Uh, One of those things is going to be the opportunity to come say hi to us. We'll be at the Industry Pro Fair, and if you want to ask us any questions about podcasting, we will be happy to answer them there. On Thursday, we'll be in the lounge areas at 9 and 2 p.m. And again, on Friday, we'll be scheduled at 10 and 2 p.m. The majority of my weekend will be spent hosting some author Q&A sessions. Here's where I'll be. On Thursday at 1.30, I am scheduled to host a chat with B.L. Maxwell, J.M. Dabney, and Spencer Spears. On Friday, I've got a couple more scheduled at 10.30 a.m., We'll have Kiki Borelli, Riley Long, and Shannon West. And then at 5.30, we'll have Ann Lister, C.S. Poe, and T.L. Travis. I think you're going to have a great time with those folks. That's going to be a nice lineup for you. Now, you can also look for us at the featured author signing on Saturday, which happens at 10 a.m. Now, we're part of a scavenger hunt that's going to happen alongside some terrific authors, uh, Reese Ford, Andrew Gray, Megan Maslow, Rowan McAllister, T.A. Moore, Jody Payne, Julia Talbot, L.A. Witt, and Kiernan Kelly. Now, Ari McKay is the organizer of all this fun, and you're going to need to see her first during the author signing. She's going to give you a nice charm bracelet, and then you're going to come see the rest of us to get charms to put on the bracelet. And then you go back to her. She'll give you a special GRL charm and put you into the running for some super cool prizes. So we're going to kind of be the wild cards there because we aren't tied down to a table. So you'll just have to be on the lookout for either one of us during that event. And we also are planning to do a Facebook Live starting around 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on Wednesday. Uh, Charlie David's going to be our guest. Now, Charlie's not only at GRL as an audiobook narrator, but he's also shooting footage for a documentary that he's working on. And we're going to have all the details on that. So make sure to check out our Facebook page periodically as well, because we may have some more live broadcasts over the weekend. There could be some surprises along the way, just as we get things sorted out. So yeah, I am looking forward to GRL. It's my, it's, I think it's my favorite thing to do during the year, and I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Now, of course, it's October still, and that means you've got another seasonal read for us. What did you check out this week? Well, this week I read Harvest Moon by Joshua Ian. Now, The Harvest Moon is a historical romance with an intriguing touch of magic. The beginning of this novella opens with our hero Malcolm, who has stopped to rest at a small village. That night outside the tavern, he meets a handsome and intriguing young man, a weaver whose name is Daniel. That makes him polite small talk, but the conversation eventually goes deeper. Malcolm is drawn to him, convinced that his new acquaintance shares his same interests. And we all know mm. we know what that means in a historical context. Yeah. And, he, and he's making really nice air quotes here as he says that. Now, Daniel invites him to his cottage in the forest. Um, guys, it might be 1834, but Malcolm recognizes a booty call when the opportunity presents itself. <laughs> Good for him. They make their way through the woods, which are... Um, 
kind of alive with a special kind of magic that the the bright harvest moon brings. And at the cottage, Daniel is a perfect host. Uh, they chat and they share a drink and end up going to bed together. Malcolm has never experienced anything like what he feels when he's with Daniel. When he awakes in the middle of the night, the bed is empty. There's a menacing knife on a table, and Daniel is on the floor in front of the fire, seemingly in pain. He tells Malcolm to leave before his grandfather returns home. Daniel seems angry, but remorseful, uh, in need of care, but like coldly antagonistic. Uh, Malcolm wants to help, but he eventually agrees to leave. The next morning at the inn, Malcolm hears several locals talking about the elderly weaver in the woods. He mentions that he knows Daniel, but is warned away with long-told tales of evil and witchcraft. Malcolm is worried and decides before continuing on the rest of his journey to go see Daniel and offer any help that he can. When he arrives at the cottage, he finds the old man who tells him that Daniel isn't there and he won't ever be coming back. Malcolm presses him further and realizes that the old man is Daniel. He tells Malcolm the sad, <laughs> frankly, it's really, really sad, <laughs> the sad story of how long ago he met and fell in love with a man named Thomas, a weaver and a, a practitioner of magic. They were truly inseparable until villagers uh, were whipped up into a witch hunting frenzy and they killed Thomas, cursing Daniel to a life of endlessly searching for his long lost love. You see, the night before, Malcolm was to be sacrificed to the harvest moon for another year of Daniel's life. But sharing the same strong feelings as Malcolm, Daniel couldn't go through with it. Malcolm kisses Daniel and their love finally freeing him from his long curse. Malcolm takes Daniel back to his ancestral estate where they can love and live happily ever after. I really enjoyed the story from a new to me author. While the narrative is firmly rooted in the historical aspects of the story, the magical elements give it a really intriguing fairy tale vibe. And I'm not talking like cutesy Disney fairy tale. This is more kind of like dark and sexy, grim fairy tale territory. I like it. Something else that I found interesting was the use of language, which is very rich and evocative, but not dense and confusing like the literature of the time in which the story is set. Um, the dialogue especially has a certain uh, ring of authenticity. It comes across as period appropriate without being burdened with a lot of like these and thou arts and that kind of stuff. If you're looking for something a little bit different, but something still very romantic and satisfying from like a genre perspective, I would definitely recommend Joshua Ian's Harvest Moon. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Every aspect of it makes me want to go pick this book up like right now. And I have to say too, the cover on this book is absolutely gorgeous. It, it rings true to like the historical covers and everything, and I just loved it. So I'm so glad you enjoyed that. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else we talked about in this week's episode, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 210 at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Did you know that podcasts love to get reviews too? Taking a moment to leave a review about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast helps us with the show's visibility online. Please take a moment to visit iTunes and leave a review. Your comments help other readers of gay romance discover this show. Thanks for helping us spread the word about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. So I'm excited this week that we get to welcome Jen Hale to the show. 
Now, Jen sort of appeared on the podcast last year during a GRL bonus episode that we did with the authors from the Devil Take Me anthology. She was propped up as a standee behind them because she could not get to GRL, so she couldn't take part in the interview. So I'm thrilled to finally actually have her on the show to talk about her stories, and in particular, Masters of Restless Shadows, which just came out last week. Welcome, Jen Hale, to the podcast. It is so good to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) You have just released a new book that happens to be the beginning of the end to the Kay Leone series. For those who might be new to that series, tell us all about it. Okay. Well, it is a trilogy of duologies. The first set are Lord of the White Hell. The second set is Champion of the Scarlet Wolf. And then the third set is this Master of Restless Shadows. And it's an epic fantasy. So on the surface, it's all about battles over national rulership and demon invasions and spells, curses. But really the core of it is a group of school friends who are almost all queer um, and how they go from being you know, young teenagers and very enclosed and then steadily build their own communities and societies and change the world around them. So well, it's like epic adventure, the core of it is really their relationships as friends and when they come into conflict, how they resolve that. So that's sort of what it's about without giving away too much. <laughs> yeah, no spoilers here. No, no. What's this new book about the Master of Restless Shadows? Um, or what can is... you say without getting into that spoiler territory? <laughs> well, it's specifically about the the rulership of Cade Leon. Um, the previous books were about another nation that was under their protectorate breaking away and getting their own self-control and rulership. And um, that nation, you know, several of the school friends went and helped the other side, basically, and brought about like a, a awakening of old gods and magical forces that the Cade Leonian church had suppressed. Um, and so... This is sort of a crisis between the group of friends, and then there's also a fight going on within the Cadleonian nation um, between people who are much more diverse and liberal and open, and people who really want to return to a hyper-conservative, very racist past. And so um, a number of characters are of mixed race. Um, Quite a few of them, uh, all of them, I think, are LGBTQIA. So there's like a a huge diversity of characters who all have their own political agendas and reasons for supporting whoever they do. Um, The core characters are Atreyu, who is a spy master, but he's also a playwright. He's kind of loosely based on Christopher Marlowe, the contemporary of Shakespeare's, who was an incredible playwright, but because he came from such poverty and hardship, he had to take jobs for the Privy Council working as a spy. And so um, there's a lot of that in Atreyu. And um, then there's his school friend who is, you know, much, much more wealthy, Fidelis, who is actually now inherited a dukedom. And he is in a way almost disabled because his sensitivity to magic makes him um, see things that just aren't there for anyone else. So he's constantly having these visions, you know, like there are these ghosts looming up over things that are just terrifying for him, but no one else or very few other people can see them 
And so, you know, he's always going through things that other people aren't aware of. And so uh, a lot of times he seems like he's the mad duke. Um, but he's also a favorite of the king and a major supporter of the heir to the crown. And then there's Narcy, who is uh, the new character who's come up from the very liberal capital of Anacleto in the south. And he's been brought in to this circle, this king's circle and the duke's circle, because he's a physician and he's connected with other members of the family. I don't want to spoil it, but he's an important character and he is super clever and a problem solver, which I love. And then the last character is a character, Arise, who I slipped in in the very first books, just as this tiny, tiny 16-year-old character you barely see. He's just boring as a lump of dirt. <laughs> he's, he's worked very hard on maintaining this incredibly nondescript, uninteresting um, kind of appearance, which it makes it really hard as an author to describe people noticing him. <laughs> He noticed the really unnoticeable guy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's sort of the conflict and the um, alliances that these characters all have and make that eventually decides the rulership of the nation. And when does the second book of this particular duology come out? It will be out next year. Next year. Yeah. Hopefully it'll just take people a really long time to read the first book. When I write the duologies, I actually write them as one whole book. So they're written entirely, and then they're cut. <laughs> when you write like that, do you know where the cut point will be? Or is it truly like, oh, here's half, and so we're just going to cut it there? No. The first time, it was just it was a huge story, and I didn't have any intention of cutting it. And there just happened to be this point, because it was set up around a school year, because I was introducing these school friends, where it just happened to cut very nicely. And so because the printing constraints required it to be two shorter books to basically not have the spine crack in half. And then the second book, I actually did build the plot so that it had this midpoint conflict and then kind of went down and then had another much higher point conflict um, to be the final resolution. So there's a smaller battle that makes a turning point for the characters that puts them on the road to the really big final epic battle. I love plotting. <laughs> and I would imagine for a book like this and a series like this, you really kind of got to get the plot sorted so you know what oh, each book yeah. is doing, what the entire series is doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really would feel terrible if I was just like, well, now I need to figure out what to happen. Like I, at one point I have, I have this very big outline. Like you, folded out. It's not as big as the one for the Rifter. The Rifter books had a um, 24 by 36 sheet of newsprint that I used to write out because it had two timelines. But for the Caleonians, I had like these big kind of roll out, um, I guess they're architectural papers mm -hmm. to, to write those out. But at one point I thought I'd lost one. And <laughs> I was just like, <gasps> oh, but fortunately I had taken photos of the outline. <laughs> I was able to piece it back together. Yeah. But there was just this one moment where I was just like, Oh no. <laughs> um, just because there are so many little details that I've tried to, you know, put in, put in to build up everything that's going to come to a climax in the very last book. So just having to go back through and read all of them to try and find those details again would have been a nightmare. 
nightmare. <laughs> How much did things change from when you started this series to getting through the final book? Did you did the plot stay or did it end up in kind of morph as you went along? Most of the plot stayed completely. The only thing that changed is I have my editor really, really, really liked the character of Atreyu. And originally he was always going to be a character throughout all the books because he's the person who's writing down the histories that, you know, that are the stories of the books, if that makes sense. Like he's writing his memoirs, which are the books I'm writing, but his version is way sexier. Um, <laughs> so she just really loved this character of Atreyu. And she was like, why don't you tell the story from his point of view? At least one segment of it, use him as a character. And I was like, well, I don't know. I don't know about doing it. He's kind of a weird character to try and pin down. Like I love giving him like little sidelines that are clever and things like that. But to actually maintain that, you know, his sort of poetic speech and things like that all the time is, is a little tough. But then I started thinking about it more and more and I really loved the idea of sort of his dual character and exploring that where he outwardly pretends to be this like complete degenerate who doesn't care about anything, you know, and he's just a playwright and whatever, but he's actually very central to a lot of politics. And he's actually an incredibly good actor and an uncanny kind of political judge. And so I was like, well, you know, he's a really interesting character and he has so much insight into everyone else. Um, that he's really kind of cool to write about. And he's very flawed as well, which kind of offsets. The character of Narcy is a bit younger and more naive and idealistic. And so the two of them, once I started writing them together, they just have this really nice, witty repartee where Atreyu is, you know, intelligent and experienced and sometimes underestimates just how smart Narcy is. Because Narcy, while he hasn't had a ton of worldly experience, is very clever and thoughtful and has also read all of Atreus' books <laughs> and memorized them. So he's, he's really he's a huge fan and they've actually known each other for a really long time. It's just Atreus doesn't really remember because, you know, he had a lot going on. What with being, you know, hunted by the bishop's men and having to ride through a city for his life, you know, he didn't notice that Narcy was actually um, working in the household he was in. And, you know, they met... And that's part of the mystery of the story is like how how they knew each other and what interactions they had and why Narcy has all these insights into Atreyu that no one else guesses at. So that was sort of a fun thing to be able to bring back in. Some of this, from what you described of the first part of Master of Restless Shadows, really sounds pulled from headlines that we're seeing right now with the uh, society the way it is and trying to pull back towards you know oh yeah past yeah. a little bit was that deliberate as you wrote your outline yeah it just kind of turned out that way it actually threw me originally i was planning to write these books much much faster much sooner but when trump was elected that just it threw me entirely you know and really i spent quite a bit of time you know being active politically and putting the book on the back burner. And in part, I had a really hard time writing it because there was so much that was actively going on mm -hmm. that it was really hard because part of what I always want to bring to readers, especially queer readers, is this feeling of triumph that we will win. Just it's been my personal experience, you know, being out as a teenager in the 80s was not good. <laughs> 
Um, but <laughs> things are so, so much better now that I, I want to keep that positive energy. But it was very, very hard to write with a positive energy right then. Mm-hmm. You know, like a lot of that was just like, it's very hard to address the sort of um, just intense bigotry and hatred that was coming from our real government and then you know try and write a story where but it's fine in this fantasy world you know I was just like oh god what I ended up doing is actually taking a break putting it away writing a number of other short stories and things like that publishing them and then coming back to it with a greater feeling of sort of resolve that I really felt this was necessary to address and, you know, they're, they're conflicts that don't go away mm-hmm. necessarily. Like throughout human history, we've had, we always come up against, you know, our tendency to be very closed off and protective and to sort of demonize the other, what we perceive as not ourselves. And so that's really an important thing to address and to fight basically, even if it's in a fantasy fiction, you know, with just a lot of love stories, it's important to show that that can be conquered in ourselves and in our society. And so I felt really revitalized once I found that that was what I was doing. But yeah, when I first was like, you know, this is a fantastical old timey story of bad people. And then I was like, oh, no, they're coming back. (laughs) We've elected them. No. What was your overall inspiration for this series? It was back in 2006, 2005. And I was in my writer's group. I have a writer's group. And one of my friends had just started really getting into horses and she was like, I would love it if you would write one of your stories set with a bunch of horses. And another one was like, what if you put it in a boys school? And I was like, okay, boys school with horses. And that was kind of the inspiration where I was like, you know, it should have just the writing prompt. (laughs) Right. Right. Well, that's kind of how a lot of these stories happen is, you know, one of my friends will be like, I really am missing having a story with, you know, noodles or you know like they'll, they'll say all kinds of just odd things you know or a story that has aliens that are cockroaches and i'm like oh okay and it should be a noir story on a space station where the character can't see you know and all of a sudden i've written like maze born trouble and stories like that i don't know quite where it became an epic fantasy except when i started plotting i always feel when i'm trying to build a world that You know, it can't just be like any other fantasy world. It's just the tropes of the fantasy world. There needs to be an integration between the world, kind of its history and the characters. Like the characters, to me, need to feel like they grew up in that world and that there is like a history for them to address and to redress. And there are conflicts that are inherent to the world that aren't just based on conflict put in character who's 20th century modern character who's all like, that's bad, <laughs> you know, or that's good, you know. So I tend to end up having much more expansive stories for that reason. But ponies, that's how it started. <laughs> at a school, ponies at yeah. a school. Yeah, and a school for riding ponies. <laughs> ponies are never a bad place to start, really. No. No. um, And I had, as a a young person, I had gotten a job when I was really quite young working as a groom 
So I had a lot of experience of ponies in a way that maybe other people don't have, which is ponies as cleaning their stalls. Mm. <laughs> it's a different kind of point of view. <laughs> Talking about world building a little bit, what's kind of your process for it? Because as somebody who doesn't write fantasy, because it kind of overwhelms me in thinking about it. You know, as I think about plotting a story, it's like I start with my characters and know kind of what their flaws are and what their things are and what that arc is for them. But I write it in the current world. But you've got your characters and your plot, but then you've got to build this world around it. How does all that kind of piece itself together in your process? Um, for me, really, the world is built to amplify the conflicts I want to talk about. So the, the characters and the world kind of grow together. If, say, I want to talk about racial diversity, then you can build a world with different ideas of race and explore it that way. But also a lot of it comes from a lot of nonfiction reading. I really love nonfiction. And so oftentimes I'm just inspired by you know, different time periods. For example, the Cade Leonian series took a lot of the inspiration. Not, I don't lift directly because some of it seems a little bit, you don't want to just be like, and these are the Moors, you know, or these are Jews in Spain because I don't want to misrepresent my understanding of people's actual lived experiences, but sort of an inspiration of how people have lived together in different ways and how, you know, they've been tolerant of one another or intolerant and how it's been overcome or, you know, what the effects of these things are. And so a lot of times the inspiration is sort of nonfiction and then sort of through a lens of what conflicts the characters need to have to have the plot work. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> like if you need the characters to fight a dragon, you're going to have to have a world with dragons. And if you're going to have dragons, you got to have a world where you know, the ecology of dragons occurs. So it's sort of like that, where there's a lot of reverse engineering. And the mm -hmm. same thing with my plots. I start with a premise and then the ending. And then I reverse engineer from the ending to get the whole plot. How much research goes into your world? Or because you're building it, can you just kind of like, I am going to have this world with dragons and this is their ecology and there you go. Ah, uh, well, I think I could do that. I feel like I ought to be able to do that, but a lot of times I, I have the problem, like, I really remember this distinctly. At one point, I have Atreyu being followed by a group of men, and I want him to notice something very distinct about them all. And I was like, okay, it can't just be that they're all wearing uniforms, because that would just be so obvious as to who they're working for. Like, he needs to work out who they're working for of, like, all this huge number of different um, allies and enemies of his. I ended up doing a bunch of research on uh, different different shoes that butchers and sailors had to wear and the notching in the type of shoe to make them slip proof mm -hmm. earlier in history before, you know, rubber was really a thing. And so it was it was interesting. I could have just made something up, you know, just and they all wear sackcloth shoes or whatever. But I just really, really wanted to know. So sometimes I don't have to do the research, but I just love knowing things. So I'll do it anyway. And sometimes I don't even end up using it because 
you know, you write a whole bunch and then it gets edited out and the editor's yeah. like, yeah, don't need five paragraphs on how this ink was made. You really don't. <laughs> like, oh, but he did all the research. But it's just such a pleasure to know sometimes. Does all this build itself onto that giant piece of paper you've got that has the plot or do you have a separate world Bible oh, sort of thing? I have millions and millions of things that are like notes, just uh, just like scribbles that are push pinned all over. <laughs> In fact, I think this is one of the notebooks that has like, like you can see, I don't know if you can or not, but like there will be millions of notes that are taped on. Oh, wow. And unfold. And they'll just be little notes. It's wildly disorganized. <laughs> but as long as you can find it, that's all that matters. Right, right. At the end, when I'm done with the book, you know, like while I'm writing it, the notes all make sense to me and they're they're perfect and I love it. Then like if I finish a project and I go back like a year later or so, I'll be like, what, what are these crazy women scrawlings? Because they make no sense. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, they do look pretty insane once, once they're taken out of context. So, yeah, but... But yeah, I do take millions of notes, just not organized notes. <laughs> Someday down the line when it's time for the Jin Hale archive, somebody else can sort all that out. <laughs> oh, God, I hope not. I feel really sorry for anyone trying to sort out the Jin Hale archive. <laughs> <laughs> There's just tons of things about plantings and stuff, and my work you know, at the farmer's market will be written right in the middle of it. So. <laughs> now, you've been publishing for over a decade now. Oh, and yeah. your first book, Wicked Gentleman, won the Spectrum Award and was a Lambda Literary finalist. Mm -hmm. For those who might be new to you, tell us a little bit about that book that, that started you off on this path. That one was a request from uh, two gay friends who wanted a different kind of Victoriana story, and another one wanted a bunch of devils. It is set in a kind of quasi-London-like world where 300 years in the past, the demons and devils of hell have ascended and converted. And so they've become this literal underclass of people living. They're kind of imprisoned within the city. They're not allowed to just run free. So they're, they're very controlled. Most of them don't have really wild magical powers or anything like that, but they're still um, looked upon as though they're really dangerous. So it's how one of them, who's a little bit of a drug addict, gets involved with a rather corrupt police officer to solve a series of crimes. It was uh, two novellas that are linked, one from the point of view of Bellamy, the demon, and one from the point of view of Harper, the police officer. And it kind of explores how they're both damaged people. They've both been through terrible things but they grow and become stronger and eventually, you know, are capable of loving each other and supporting each other and being part of a community and, you know, surviving. It was a really fun book to write. I wrote it a really long time ago is the other thing, um, because it, you know, with publishing, especially before there was a lot of self-publishing, you'd write a story 
and send it off and get a rejection and then write another one. And I wasn't even at that time when I wrote it thinking that I was going to be an author. I just wrote it for my friends. So it was a story that got passed around among friends. And then eventually someone was like, you should actually publish this. And I was like, really? You think? Okay, we'll try it. So um, that's kind of how that came about. That's kind of cool. I mean, that it goes from being, you know, something that's just passed around among friends to getting published and then getting that acclaim as well. Yeah, I, I was shocked. I, I, when I was at the um, award, I, I, there's a this funny story that I was at the award and it was my very first time, well, not first time, but the first time to be the awards of the galactic you know, ceremony. And I was just kind of sitting there back at the table and there was also a little book fair going on of gay fantasy and fiction right beside it. And so I kept getting up and sneaking out to the book fair and I was like trying to buy books. And then for some reason I couldn't figure out why these other people who were part of, you know, the galactic society and, you know, were really integrated, really nice people, but they kept coming back and getting me and making me come back to the table. And I was just like, yeah, well, I've, you know, I just, I don't want to miss out on buying a really good book, you know? And, and they're like, no, but you really need to sit down here now. <laughs> and I was like, it was straight over my head as to why I was like, I do not understand why you people are so concerned about me being here. But, and then they announced that I'd won. And I was just like, I, I still get like, just shocked over it. Like I was just so, it was so amazing and wonderful and at the same time, you know, the other people who um, were also nominated just had such great books that I just don't know how anyone even picks a winner. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing with the Lambda Literary Awards. When you're there and, you know, you've read the books that are awarded, you know, that are in running against you. And you're just like, these books are awesome. How would you say that your storytelling has evolved since Wicked Gentleman? Um, well, hopefully it's gotten better. <laughs> Um, I think I have incorporated more complex characters. The, originally in Wicked Gentleman, it was just um, a novella, half of which is told from the first person point of view. And it's very, the world is developed, but it's very um, one point of view. Like it's very much Bellamy's point of view and then Harper's point of view. And the other characters in the world are not as nuanced. They don't, they don't get as much time to interact or to have as much of a, an impact on those characters as they do on each other. And the Kid Leonian series, for example, or the Rifter series, have much bigger casts with more varied characters where they can address more things and bring in new ideas that can spark ideas and resolutions for the characters. So I think it's the communities that I write about have grown just as my own personal communities have grown. So. And what do you think the trademark of a Jen Hale book is? My many, many trademarks. Well, probably it's a combination of, I always make sure that the story is going to have a triumphant conclusion. No matter how much hardship the characters are through, I'm not going to write a misery tale. They're not going to struggle and then fail because that isn't a story that any queer person needs to hear. We have enough of that in our history of other people telling it to us. It's not something we need to tell each other, in my opinion. Um, there are other authors who write tragedy very well and do it 
redemptively and powerfully, but it's not something I could do. So I think that's the first thing that I always approach any story idea I have with the consideration of whether or not I can make it a triumphant story. Because there are a lot of ideas where you're like, oh, and there will be this great twist where the lovers murder each other. And then I'm like, <laughs> mm, no, no, that's just, nope, not my thing. The other thing is I really do care a lot about the world building and a lot about ecology and how people integrate with their world and the histories of their world. So that usually plays a huge role. And especially in my novellas and short stories, there's a huge, usually ecological aspect to the mm. story. And um, the Rifter series is almost entirely about people healing a world that's been devastated by what they've done to it. So um, ecology plays a big part, but it might be because, you know, I do a lot of work on farms and a lot of organic farming. And I work at a farmer's market. So I see a lot of what happens with ecology and land that just gets really abused and how that affects other people's livelihoods and well-being. Mm -hmm. Is there a genre or trope that you really want to write and you just haven't found the right story or the right characters for it yet? Yeah, I would love to be able to write those really wickedly clever mysteries or even like kind of funny mysteries, like mm -hmm. the, the 1920s or something, you know, I would, I would really love to be able to pull off like a gay Poirot <laughs> or something. I would love to be able to write one of those, but I don't know that I am the kind of person who can do that. And I, I worry sometimes like about writing a genre or something that I really love that in understanding how to write it, I would take out a lot of my ability to enjoy it. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. like you can admire something, but if you dissect it, it loses something of its holistic beauty to you. You know, you start just seeing it as parts that function together in a really mechanical way. But that's kind of where I'm kind of always hesitant about trying to write the thing that I really love to read. So I just read a lot of mysteries instead and I'm sort of, sort of jealous, but in a happy way, you know, just like, oh, I could never write that. It's so cool. <laughs> but the more you read, maybe eventually it'll, you'll give that a go one day. I might not be able to stop myself because I, I write out just as a fun thing. I write plots all the time. Like I constantly oh. fill up notebooks with plots and kind of story shapes. And that's actually one of the things I do with my writers group is if someone doesn't have a plot, and they're like, I want a story where this and this happen. I'll write out plots. I'll plot the story for them and give it to them. So um, I have actually written out mystery plots, a, a number of them. It's the actual writing it that I worry would kind of ruin my, my pleasure of mystery. So mm -hmm. I'm always like a little bit afraid to do it. I'm fascinated by the writing out of plot. Are these just ideas that you have that you might turn them into books? Or is it just kind of a, a th fun thing just to write out the plot oh. points? Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a kind of fun little mental exercise. It's like doing algebra. You know what the ending is. You want this ending. What can be a surprising turn here? And how do you start here from an unusual direction? And so I just really like the... I almost math of it. I really like mm. the to build plots that look 
interesting. The three-dimensional <laughs> quality of pottery plotting, it's just a pleasurable thing for me to figure out how to shape elements of a story. And I do, I think of it a lot like, you know, algebra or chemistry equations where, you know, you have two elements and you know that they're going to interact in a certain way and they'll throw off this other element that will recombine with this to create a new formula or something. It's just fun, I guess. So, yeah, so I'll just write them out. And many of them I would never write as stories because they're not the kind of story I would write. Mm -hmm. But they're really a fun little mental exercise. You must be fun to be in a writer's group with. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have been told I'm very useful. (laughs) Useful, fun, yeah. I I have uh, on a number of occasions had people call me up like, I need a plot right now. (laughs) But, you know, that's the part that I love to contribute to a writer's group. In turn, the writers that are in my group also, you know, they give me so much good feedback and on character development no um, (laughs) um and you know word choices i'm not um a master of word use she says pausing a number of times ah but um no so it really helps to have that kind of feedback and interaction and i think a lot of times people imagine that authors you know are just geniuses who sit alone and no one interacts with them or anything and they just have their idea and there it comes out pure fabulousness and for some authors maybe that is how it works but for me it's always a very communal interactive creative process even from the very beginning where I'll just take prompts and people's ideas and things they would love to read a story about my writers group usually reads chapters as I write them you know, and they give me feedback on what they like or what they don't. And then, you know, the editorial process also is really one I, I really love to be engaged in. I know that I'm delivering this story and it has a really good plot, but a lot of times I don't know that my scenes I've chosen or the way I've worded things serves that plot perfectly. And mm-hmm. so having an editor just be like, this needs to move here or this needs to be clarified is so helpful. Like it just brightens everything up and just makes it beautiful it's sort of like um probably framing matting and framing a painting i would think Mm. you know like it looks really good and you like see it and it has a lot of potential but then you see it really polished and just as it should be and you're like wow that that is good that is done and that's professional and it's just a different feeling but yeah i i I love being in a writer's group what got you started as a writer Probably just telling stories to friends. Um, I didn't start out wanting to be an author. Um, I started out studying biology and being much more interested in biology, chemistry, and botany. But I had a group of friends who were all gay and lesbian, bisexual, but mostly gay friends. Um, And we would just get together. We'd signed up, this is in first year of college, for a poetry class. Um, which I just signed up for to hang out with my friends. Kind of lazy. It was a night class. We had this fabulous um, professor who almost everyone mistook him for a hobo. He had no front teeth, and his name was Doyle. And he was just, he was great. He was so inspirational, and he would just encourage everyone. You know, and, and, and you, I don't know, he was so uninhibited. It was fabulous. But so we started 
meeting after the poetry classes, a bunch of us would hang out, you know, late night Denny's, you know, back when you could smoke indoors, back <laughs> when I was a smoker, um, you know, and we would like kind of tell each other ideas or things we'd love to see, you know, things that never, you we never saw as, you know, queer young people, we would never see stories that had, you know, dynamic heroes who were gay and then didn't like suffer for it or, you know, just, it was one of those things, you know, and we'd try and find things for each other at the time, you know, there wasn't any internet. So it wasn't like you could just type up gay story, you know, <laughs> happy ending. Uh, there, there wasn't anything. So, you know, we would have to go to gay bookstores, which meant we'd have to find a car and we'd all like jam into it and drive to the one gay bookstore in Denver, Colorado, you know, and get in there and like everyone would be furtively sneaking in because we didn't want to be bashed or beaten up. And then, you know, we'd find one book and everyone would pass it around and be like, oh, this one's pretty good. I really like this one, you know, but you couldn't find more. And so then we just started writing stories for each other. And that's kind of how it all began. I didn't mean to be a writer, but once I started writing and making income, um, it, it just worked out that way. Mm -hmm. Any particular books or authors who were among your early influences? Well, I really loved the encyclopedia. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, I honestly did. I loved encyclopedias and dictionaries so much. I adored dictionaries. Like they were like magic books. The first time I encountered one, I was like, you can look up any word. You can discover all kinds of new things you never knew existed. Just picking a few pages, I would come across things that I didn't know about at all. And there'd be this little definition telling me about something that was used for something else. And the same thing with encyclopedias, where I was just like, there's the world, it expanded the world so much to me mm -hmm. that there were all these things I had no idea about, I'd never experienced, but they existed. So that was probably one of the first things that just sparked a love of the written word itself of books and the magic of them that you can just have words that are just little marks on a piece of paper that mean could mean nothing but if you read them they suddenly build whole new worlds in your mind so that was that was incredible and then from there i remember reading elizabeth lynn a friend gave it to me the northern girl and it had a lesbian character who didn't die. And I was super, <laughs> super stoked. And then I read um, a book of short stories that had the woman who loved the moon in it. And it also had a lesbian character who didn't die. And I was super stoked. <laughs> we didn't die. She wasn't a vampire and killing her lover. You know, it was it was really exciting. It wasn't the well of loneliness. I can't tell you how many times people gave me that book. Here, you'll really enjoy this. It's really sad. <laughs> Just the title alone implies yeah, a yeah. lot of sad. Well, it is. It's deeply, deeply, deeply depressing. <laughs> so it, it started with science fiction and fantasy, I think because those were genres where, I guess, society allowed some kind of wild, fantastic flight of imagination for gay characters and lesbian characters, bisexual characters to exist and to thrive, at least to some degree, you know, for some representation to start showing up right when I was starting to, you know, hand books around and find books. 
as a young person. And so I think that's what really pulled me into science fiction and fantasy is that I, at, for the first time, I had a chance of finding queer characters who would have a happy ending. I mean, you know, obviously there were terrible things like Dune where I was just like, ah, <laughs> you know, but you know, it, it was, it's the genre that has grown and continues to grow. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I remember there was a press called Nyad Press. I don't know if you ever encountered it. It was like a little, little lesbian publishing house and a group of us found their catalog, which was like this mimeographed catalog. You could smell the mimeograph. Like, oh, oh, that was the best smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was. And, and so we'd go through and like circle the books and then we'd get together and pool our money and then we'd order them and finally get them to come in and then we'd hand them out to each other. They were illustrated, like someone just drew like kind of almost figure drawing, like little line drawings, not, not good illustrations by any stretch of the imagination, but, but there was something really wonderful about those stories that I think is something that I still really hearken back to, which is that they really felt like stories that were written by the community for other members of the community to be handed around to each mm-hmm. other. So that was, those were probably the earliest books I really remember sparking something in me. That's awesome. And I love the, the community aspect around these books that you found and then passed. It was a big deal at the time, just because, you know, you couldn't get, like, I, I love the fact that now we can get ebooks and people can just have any book. And, you know, I love, I love technology and where we've gone. But there is that small feeling of community where, you know, someone is like, have you read The Charioteer? And I'd be like, no, what is it? And Here's my copy, you know, and you can see just how much like the back has been broken and it's been retaped together, you mm-hmm. know, the someone's copy of The Charioteer. And you're like, wow, this is a cool story, you know, and it, it was it was a different time. So we know The Master of Restless Shadows, that second book is going to come out sometime next year. What mm-hmm. else is coming up for you that you can give some hints to? I have a contract for another novella set in the world of Wicked Gentlemen. The previous one was in the collection The Devil Take Me mm-hmm. that you um, covered at last URL. And so there'll be a partner to it coming out that is about Archie and Nimble and some mysteries that they solve. And then I really, really, really want to write a story that it has a magical world based around symbiosis and um, the kind of relationship that lichen play and bacterium play in different animals' lives. And sort of, this is just going to sound really weird, um, I, I, the way that we define species is, you know, a specific body. But if you think about things like the way that plants reproduce, they can't reproduce by themselves, many of them. They require a bee or some other actor to basically play the role of their reproductive organs. And so what does that mean for an alien species that is actually like its wholeness is actually divided between other beings? And so that's sort of an idea I would really like to build into a story. <laughs> Interesting. With a murder okay. <laughs> I've been writing parts of it steadily. I'm hoping it'll be the next story I finish. 
If not, there's another one that's kind of a setting that's in a basically aquatic world that is a really just a, a really interesting world of like ecological dynamics that I really like of ocean worlds. So those are the two things I'm really kind of excited about working on. Awesome. Now, what's the best way for people to keep up with you online so they can keep track of all this, all this work and know when new stuff's coming? Well, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Jen Hale. I'm on Facebook also. And I have a website. I don't update as often as I should, but the easiest way is just to write to me. People can write to me anytime they want. Um, I love getting letters and I, I will write back always. Um, I'm jenhale at gmail.com. So that's very easy. I do warn people if they go to my Instagram, it's almost nothing but plants. <laughs> okay. So, and yeah. Despite the website perhaps not being updated as much, I do love your homepage. That is a delightful drawing that people, if, if nothing else, need to go see that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, that is one of the favorite. Someone drew me and I asked them if I could use it and they were like, yes, of course. And so like, I love that little caricature. It's so cute. Yeah, it's super adorable. So yeah, people oh, should go check that out if nothing else. Right. And also on the um, site, I do, when I can, I upload free stories. Oh, so cool. that is okay. one of the reasons there's a little extras page. And if people go there, they can find like free stories that I just put up and would love to share. Fantastic. Well, Jen, thank you so much for hanging out with us. It has been awesome talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. This is awesome. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Jen for coming to talk to us. I really enjoyed this interview, hearing everything about how she attacks world building to the stuff that she does for her writers group. And I'm so inspired just to hear about an author who just writes plots just to make plots. I really enjoyed the whole thing. <laughs> so thank you, Jen. Okay, guys, I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Just a quick reminder, you can help support the podcast with a monthly pledge through Patreon. The additional support of our super fans helps pay for the cost of producing and distributing this show. Joining is easy, and you'll get special monthly bonus episodes, early access to author interviews, and the Patreon-exclusive show Big Gay Fiction After Dark. For a complete list of all of the perks that come with being a Patreon community member, simply go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. Now, coming up next week in episode 211, we'll be coming to you live from Albuquerque with our GRL wrap-up. Yeah, it's hard to say right now what that wrap-up's going to entail, but I have no doubt it's going to be full of super exciting things that we did and details of the fanboying that we might have done over certain authors who are going to be there. Super exciting fanboying. That's what GRL is all about. So guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. For detailed show notes and links to everything discussed in this episode, go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com. New episodes are available every Monday at all major podcast distributors. You can also find us on YouTube. I'm Derek McLean. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.